I use um, I use an iPad now because it's backlit and the font's bigger. It's not just because I'm old. Um, but I've been a diabetic for about 30 years and I have retinopathy and it messes whenever I move and I move unfortunately in trying to preach. Um, I, I do a lot better with the screen back, backlit and font. So uh, at McClinney, uh, sometimes I'll ask the whoever's standing by, often a young person, you know, to hand me my Bible back when I was using my Bible. And so um, young brother was standing there and when it was my Bible, I'd say, you know, hand me my sword. And they'd pick it up and say, be careful, that thing will cut you. <laughs> and so I told one of them, the other, I asked one of them the other day, I said, would you please hand me, um, would you hand me my book? And it was my iPad, which, you know, my Bible. And I said, hand me my sword. And he said, Brother David, it's an iPad. It's not a sword. That's a lightsaber now. <laughs> So if you have your Bible or your lightsaber or your sword, whatever it may be, um, please turn very quickly. We're just going to be there for just a moment. I, I did want to begin. I always want to begin by reading a portion of God's word before we begin our message. This is God's word. First Peter chapter 3, very familiar. First um, Peter chapter 3, verse 15. This is it. But sanctify, that means set apart the Lord God in your hearts. And let me encourage you. That's the entirety of your heart. Sometimes we kind of, you know, I'll just, I'll put a little room for the Lord in my heart. And then I'll have all these other rooms. It, it does not work that way. Your entire heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready Always, this is it, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason. That means an account. Be ready to give an account of what you believe. A reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Let me stop right there and I won't mention this again. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to respond to questions that are asked you. Here he says um, to respond with a spirit of meekness and fear. If you're giving a response to someone about what you believe about God, who we are, where we came from, all the great fundamentals that go to make up truth. If you're giving a response to someone uh, about what you believe as a disciple, be careful the spirit that you do it in. Um, you know, it's real easy to get offended, and I've done this before. It's, get, it's real easy to get offended, you know, like James and John, when they come back from preaching and said, God, they didn't receive what we had to do. And so those humble men said, Lord, if you wouldn't mind, would you just rain down lightning on that city and burn them up? Those very, pre John, the apostle of love, that's what he wanted. <laughs> uh, it was different uh, 60 years later. You know, it's, what is our goal whenever we answer folks about what we believe? I'm telling you personally, I'm trying to win folks to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want, I'm not trying to win them for heaven. I'm trying to win them to the kingdom, the visible kingdom of God in this world. I want born again 
blood-bought children of God to have the peace of mind and the joy that I have in the midst of the challenges and the obstacles of life that comes along in knowing truth. Truth salves my soul even when all around my soul everything's giving away. The truth of God still brings me joy in the midst of the battle. Amen? We can drink from that well no matter how dry this world gets. And you want that for other people. If you're in it for the right reason, you should want that for other people. So uh, offending them and the way you respond with the truth is not going to work out. Paul said... um, He said, but speak the truth. That's what he says in Ephesians 4. He said, speak the truth in love. When you give an answer, speak the truth in love. Don't pick up a spiritual Louisville slugger and knock out their front teeth. But you idiot, don't you know it's sovereign grace? How can only a stupid, you know, bam. Well, see how that works out for you. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. My goal is to want him to speak the truth in love. Paul said that we may grow up unto him who is the head of the body, even Christ. We want to grow people, grow them up. Okay. A reason to hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So I want to help uh, equip your minds. I want to equip the saints while I'm here. Help you to give an answer for the most often asked question that I receive as a minister of the gospel, as a servant in our community. Um, The most often asked question that I receive, and people trying to, um, some folks are very sincere when they ask the question. They, how how can we, Brother David, how can we believe in God? And this is happening. I'm gonna tell you what it is. And then I have other people that ask the question, how can you believe in God? How can you? And here's the question. So some people ask it this way. How can you? How do you have the gall? How dare you? And that's what our young folks are going to get hit with. How can you? How dare you believe? You call yourself, you say that you believe in a loving, benevolent creator who has reached outside of himself and is so loving to the point that he sends his own son to die for a people that he loves? How can you say that he's a loving God whenever he allows darkness, evil, and suffering to continue in this? If he's all-powerful, if he's in control, if he owns it all, if he's on the throne, if he's really the sovereign God, How can you say he's a good God and allow evil? That's the most off-asked question that I receive. And then I receive it this way from folks. Brother David, help me. I don't understand how our good God allows this suffering, this pain, this darkness to go on that my family is experiencing. I get it from both ends of the continuum. And because of the nature of the things that I do on a daily basis in our community, I get that question a lot every single week. I've gotten it since I've been here this weekend. 
I have. I've gotten it since I've been here this weekend. And he gave me permission. I visited with a brother yesterday who shared with me his experience growing up and his father having received from the hand of a great uncle a Civil War relic, a cat of nine tails, and his uncle handed it to his father in his presence and told him, listen, this will get his attention. And it was beat the rest of his childhood experience with a cat of nine tails. And he bears the scars of it till this day. During this week, several times, I was asked, if God is a good God, if he really loves us, if he cares for us, how can he let this go on? How can this happen? And you need to be, if you're sitting in, let me say this, if you go to university, you go to high school, you're going to have that question asked. The Christian God, how... The Christian God sending his people forth in the crusades to just mass murder Muslims in the Middle East because they held Jerusalem. Let me say this. God didn't send those armies forth in the crusades. Don't blame that on God. God's never asked his disciples to go claim land on his behalf murdering others. He has not. He has told disciples that we should send forth those that are sent for the punishment of evildoers. They ought to go with a sword in their hand. But don't blame the malice and the meanness of men on God. So it's a tough question. Brother Gail Ferry stood right there yesterday morning and he asked me, he said, Brother David, talking about some of the things I mentioned Friday night, he said, Brother David, he said, tell me, how do you answer that question? How do you answer that? It's a tough question. The truth is, God is a good God. He's a loving God. He's a benevolent God. And he does have all power. And then the truth is, there is evil and darkness and suffering in this world. So how do you, how do you answer that? Well, go with us. First of all, I want to tell you um, what the answer is not. What the answer is not. I was given this book back in the late 1980s, and it still makes the rounds today. It's unbelievable. And this is what a lot of the Christian world today embraces as the truth. It comes from the hand of a, uh, of a Reformed Jewish rabbi, uh, and his name was Kirshner, Rabbi Kirshner. And he wrote a book in the 80s. It became a, a New York Times just runaway bestseller. And the name of the book was Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? I read the book. It was horrible. <laughs> and not because it was, I've written, I've read some good things that were written by rabbis, orthodox rabbis. Uh, Learn a lot about Old Testament from them. Kirshner said this. This is what he finally had to say at the end of his book, the last several pages. I don't recommend you get the book and read it for yourself. Just listen to what I have to say about it. <laughs> Kirshner said this at the end. He said, here's, here is the bottom. Here is why, here's how we deal with the truth that there is a loving, benevolent God in heaven. He said, God is love. And the fact that there is darkness, evil, suffering, and pain in this world. How can those two things happen? And this is what he said. He begins by saying, we have to give God a pass. We have to give God a pass. This is not the answer. 
He said, we just, we have to get reconciled to the fact that God is doing all he can do. He said, running this, this is what Kirshner said. He said, running this universe is a big deal and it takes a lot of effort. And we can't expect God to be able to take care of everything at all times. We're just asking too much of God. We need to give him a pass. God does not need a pass. That's not the answer. It's not that God doesn't have the ability to put down evil and darkness. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And he's going to do it in his time. Paul said of the... Uh, of the unveiling of the total supremacy and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a timeline, and that's what we need to get down with. In his timeline, Paul tells the young preacher Timothy, he said, in his own time, in his own time, God has a timeline. I'm getting ahead of my points. But I have to say this. In his own time, he is going to show who is the only blessed and potentate King of kings and Lord of lords. God's going to put it down in his time. But God walks and works according to his schedule, not according to my schedule. I want you to be able to answer these things. I want you all, dear ones, to be able to give a reason of hope that's in you. And it's essential. We're going to use this truth this morning to try and press this in your mind. You have, as... As our dark culture comes against all of us. And parents, this isn't just a sermon for young folks in universities and in school. It's for parents and grandparents to learn how to help equip the minds of your children and grandchildren. So you have three options whenever it comes to handling the tough questions about God. You can do one of, you can do one of three things. And my son and I came up with these three, the three C's. You can be a cave dweller, you can be a cave dweller, you can be a cave in, or you can be a collider. One of three things. That's your option as you go forward the rest of your life. You can be a cave dweller, you can be a cave in, or you can be a collider. Whenever it comes to uh, born again children of God and their testimony, let me say this. Paul tells the young preacher Timothy, he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in this world shall what? Suffer persecution. It's, you're going to be called on uh, to be uh, defamed, to be humiliated, to be shamely treated for speaking out and speaking up, given a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. It may cost you something somewhere. My son told me recently, he said, Dad, he said, I've always wanted to be a research scientist. He said, I don't know if that's going to work out for me. I really don't think that will work out for me. He said, the colleges, universities have gone so woke in America. I don't believe that someone who looks like I look and believes what I believe, I believe they'll ferret me out. I may have to go into private industry. That's okay. <laughs> His trouble could be a lot worse than that. But I'm telling you, it's going to cost him something probably. It will cost you something probably. And he is so worth it. Amen. Now you can't opt out. 
You can be, you can do this. You can just check out on discipleship. You can decide, I'm just not going to engage. Now listen to me very carefully. You can decide that I'm going to be a disciple in secret. Nicodemus, during the, after he met with the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3, he became a disciple in secret for the next three years. And that's what we decided we call cave dwellers. That's uh, the folks, there's a monastery, there's a monastery at the foot of, of uh, uh, Mount Sinai, which is remote, it's about as remote, Mount Sinai, out in the Sinai Peninsula, out in the desert, places of which there's never been a recorded drop of precipitation, and there is a huge monastery there where monks go because they're che- they don't want to be involved or engaged with this wicked world system, so they go to St. Catherine's and just check out on everything, and they become cave dwellers. They're disciples, but they're not going to engage. Let me tell you, God has called on you to engage. God has not called you to isolation. He's called you to insulation. He hasn't called you to be uh, isolated from the world, but you're to go out in the world insulated by the truths that this Precious man teaches you every Sunday so faithfully. He's helping to insulate you from the darkness of this world. And you go out into this world and engage the world and be a point of light. Don't become a cave dweller. Christ has called us to be his witnesses. It's the last meeting that he has with the church on the face of the earth. You're to be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You are his witnesses. He's called us not to be, don't be a cave dweller. Don't. Don't be a cave dweller. And don't be a cave-in. Cave-in. So what's cave-in? Well, the cave dwellers, they're a little level above the the cave-ins. They're, they're trying to hold to their discipleship by checking out on everything and not engaging with everything, but uh, that's what I have to do to remain a disciple. You must engage. Don't be a cave But the cave-ins, the cave-ins, I'm going to tell you one of the uh, saddest verses in all of the Word of God. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we read this about a gentleman. Paul, he's saying goodbye, and he often references those that are with him. And he says, Luke, the beloved physician, salutes you. And Demas. Demas was with him in Colossians. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul says this. Let me ask you this. Have you ever met anyone named Demas? Do you all know any Demases out there? If Demas is your middle name, keep it to yourself. You know the reason you've never met anybody named Demas? The le- Can you imagine being Demas? The last thing that we ever hear about Demas, when he was with Paul in Colossians 4, the last thing that we hear about Demas, this is not the last thing that I want people to hear about me. Paul says this. <laughs> and Paul was at a point in his ministry when he needed a friend. And he said, Demas hath forsaken us having loved this present world Demas was a born again child of God Demas was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ he went with Paul Paul had engaged him let me tell you if he wasn't right he wouldn't have been with the apostle Paul I mean he wouldn't have John Mark 
Demas hath forsaken us, having loved this present world. He was a cave-in. He was a cave-in. So what does a cave-in look like? That's when somebody asks you, what church do you attend? And you do like this. You go, well, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> You've never done that, have you? Well, where do you attend? Well, I'm one of those Baptists. <laughs> you leave the primitive off of Baptist. I mean, I've, you know, I tell people... I like to say primitive Baptist. I do. I like to say, and I emphasize primitive Baptist. I try to do it in a kind way. It's, it's novel. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. If you're out trying to engage, it actually stirs up questions that I love answering. I've had some of the most productive conversations with people about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, I'm a primitive Baptist. What does that mean? And they're like, Wow. And then you get the responses that I've gotten before. I've gotten this response before. Oh, so y'all live in caves and scratch on the walls, right? Primitive Baptists. Well, oh, so what? So what if somebody says that? Don't be a cave-in. Let me tell you, the brother that I met with in his office that I told you about, that uh, said, no, I believe what you believe more than I... He was a cave-in. He caved. Don't be a cave dweller. Don't be a cave-in. Be a collider. Be a collider. Engage. <laughs> Engage with God's people in the culture around you. You don't know what the Lord may do with you. Julian Cunningham was a collider. Amen? <laughs> he was the dictionary definition of collider. <laughs> Look in the dictionary at the word collider, and there's this picture right there. He was constantly, and God help us to be, constantly, not afraid of the faces of men. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And the uh, same apostle who cursed and swore three times in one night, I never knew him. Not many days hence, the Holy Spirit has stood up in him. And he's engaging. He's not going to be a cave-in. He's not going to be a cave-dweller. And he's in front of men who are going to beat him and humiliate him. And, and the ruling elite uh, in Jerusalem look at Peter and they say, Did not we straightly commend you not to speak in this man's name again? And you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And that collider looked at them and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Don't be afraid of their faces. Now, whenever I say collide, remember what I said about the Louisville slugger. <laughs> I'm just, when they call you out, when they call you out, like Deidre, when she called me out and said, that is horrible. That's the most horrible thing that I've ever heard. That's terrible. And I began to ask her that series of questions. I made no impact on Deidre, but it did on Sherry Henry. Engage. Okay. So engaging specifically with this truth. So if God is a sovereign God, and he is, if he's a loving, kind, benevolent God, and he is, how do you explain evil, pain, suffering, the dark, fell deeds of men in this world? Um. The first thing I tell people, the very, very first thing I tell people, if you want to see what God does, if you want to see what the Lord has done, 
If you want to see God's work, what he intended, then read Genesis chapter 1. Amen? And at the end of every day in Genesis chapter 1, this is what God, the loving, kind, benevolent creator, has to say about his creation, that it's good, very good. That's what God does. Whatever he does, he's a good God. He's a righteous God. And whatever he does is good. What I'm telling you, whenever you look at the dark, the first answer is whenever you look at the dark, the evil, the pain, and the suffering of this world, the answer is not that God uh, predestinated it, that he purposed it, that that was his plan, that was his design. Genesis 1 was his design. He created man especially equipped uh, to be his vice regent on the face of the earth and to live with him in unbroken fellowship and in channels of harmony. And he was to be a good steward and live in balance with God's creation. That's what God intended. And it was made perfectly and adequately and everything that man needed. So... (laughs) The brokenness of this world does not happen in Genesis 1. The brokenness of this world happens in Genesis 3. If you will see where it comes from, the origin of it is in Genesis chapter 3, not Genesis chapter 1. Brokenness comes into this world whenever, as Big Mo would say, when Brother Lonnie Sr. would say, when Adam reached forth his ungrateful hand to pluck the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whenever our mother and father in the Garden of Eden, whenever they decided to uh, perpetrate the foul revolt against the throne of God in heaven and to become their own bosses, Satan convinced them they could do it better than God had designed. That's when brokenness entered this world. Don't charge God with evil. He's not the author. You say, yeah, but what about, what about, you know, um, I remember when I was a boy, a preacher you say, well, some, this is it. He was, he was kind of, I don't know what he was doing, but he would say, well, some men say Adam would have stood if he could. And some say Adam could have stood if he would, and, and he would have stood if he could, and he could have stood if he would. But I just say he fell. Like, I'm not going to decide whether Adam could have stood if he would. No, my friends. That, that was not God's... Let me ask you this. As a parent, if your child uh, does something that you've told them not to do, what do you call that? Disobedience. Is there ever a time when your child does something that you've told them clearly, don't do this, that you call that obeying you? Those are mutually exclusive actions. You can't disobey and obey all in the same time. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, this ought to close it for eternity. Wherefore, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Don't tell me Adam was complying with God's secret will for him, as John Calvin says. And I've always wondered about John Calvin and the secret counsel of God. If it was so secret, how did John Calvin know about it? (laughs) The Apostle Paul didn't know about it. John Calvin knew about the secret counsel of God. No, there's no secret counsel of God. God despises evil. He abhors evil. And if you want to see 
If you want to see God's attitude about sin, you look at what he did to his son on Calvary. As he who knew no sin was made sin for us. It pleased the father. That's how much God abhors sin. Isaiah said that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Look at, look at the hatred of the thrice holy God in heaven for sin. As he bruises the lovely lamb of God because of your sins. So the answer is not that the brokenness of this world is God's will. What was God's will was Genesis chapter 1. His lovely creation and his design. And that's all we need to say about that. We don't need to try to reason, well, what? play uh, mental gymnastics with it. It was not God's purpose. It was not God's design. And so I'm, I'm really, really, really strong about that. When somebody tells you, well, you're loving God, you know, and you believe that he's God and he's all-powerful and he could have stopped it if he, if he wanted to stop it, so it has to be his will because he didn't exercise his power. The word of God does not have any of that. So when somebody tells you that, you tell them sin entered the world because of Romans 5.19, the disobedience of a man. And many became sinners as a result of that. It was not... so. The brokenness of this world is a result of Genesis chapter 3, not Genesis chapter 1. God did not plan and purpose brokenness. Now, God is not the author of brokenness, but he's got the remedy. He's got the remedy. Okay, the second thing that I share with folks, and I share this, and I share this with the folks that ask the question this way. They get this answer. Brother David, um, we are broken. We are so broken. You know, I, I think now probably in my ministry close to, close to a dozen times I've been to the graves of mothers with children. Now, I'm going to tell you as a pastor, I've been in hard places, tough places, over the past many years, but the most difficult place that I ever go with anybody is with a mother and father to the grave of their child. Boy, if you want to feel inadequate, if you want to feel weak, do that one time. Now, God's able. He's able. And he, I've seen him do incredible uh, you know, exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or think on behalf of families and they grow closer to him in spite of the brokenness of their circumstance. But I've had a lot of those kind of families say, Brother David, I just don't understand. God's a good God. He's all powerful. Why this suffering? I had, uh, I had a gentleman last Sunday I had a gentleman last Sunday who knows Elder Herman Griffin well. All Herman Griffin's ever done is serve the Lord. That's it. You all may not know him as well as we know him here. Uh, but all Brother Herman Griffin's ever done is serve the Lord Jesus Christ um, after the model of his Savior. Never heard him say an aught's word about anybody. He loves the Lord. He's been passionate, fervent. And so 
uh, a gentleman asked me, he said, listen, why, why, I, mean, I, I don't understand if God loves us and he cares for us, why would he allow Brother Herman to continue to suffer? Now, see, that's a little different question than the first question. He's not saying God's the author of Brother Herman's suffering, but how, how do you make sense of him continuing to suffer like he's suffering? Martin Unley, others that you've known, have suffered greatly. It's a matter of perspective, and this may be the most important answer that I give you in this matter. It's a matter of perspective. We are, we're so focused on the here and now. We are so focused, we are so enamored. We are, let's all confess it now while I'm saying this, I'm with you, I, I fall into it, I get, I, I get let us, we, we're all very enamored with the world in which we, we are, with the life that we have, right? I mean, I can remember, my prayers used to be this way, you know, Lord, just let me live long enough to marry the right person, and I married her. Lord, let me live long enough to have a child, and I had one. Lord, let me live long enough to, how many of you have done this? Lord, let me live long enough to raise my child, and that's all I ask. Just let me get him raised and get his mama taken, and that will be good enough. And after he grew up, Lord, let me live long enough to see him get married, and he did. <laughs> and now that he's married, you know what my prayer is? You grandparents know, don't you? Lord, let me live long enough to be just as foolish as all my friends who are grandparents. I want to see grand. Of course. We are of the earth earthy. We're tied to this world. In one sense, we can't help it. And so, in our suffering, and this is, this is the answer. In our suffering, in the pain, observing evil around us, not just personal suffering, but observing evil and horror in this world um, because we're so tied to this world we just think this is it this is all that's happening this is all that's going to happen this is the way it is and it's just going to you know I, I talked to a brother since I've been here I love to visit with people I talked to a brother since I was in since I've been here and you all know him uh, and he said I could share this I talked to a brother since I've been here uh, brother Bill Lyons and he told me that from April, I think he said, April of, I think I've got this right, April of 2020, COVID year, to October of 2020, he had a 12-hour surgery. Have you ever sat through it? You ever been with somebody through a 12-hour? That's, it, it never ends. It's just hard. You sit there and agonize with the family. He had a 12-hour surgery in that, in that few months, uh, uh, April to October. He had a 12-hour surgery he had a 14-hour surgery. He had a six-hour surgery. And then he had six one-hour procedures all in those few months. I mean, that's incredible. And I asked him, I said, what was the pain like? Did, what was the pain like? And he said, listen, there was one night. He said, Brother David, I don't know if you've ever been like this before. He said, um, I just, it, it seemed like it was always worse at night. It was horrible pain. He, he said, it just seemed like it was always worse at night. You ever experienced that? When you're sick, you're sicker at night. Amen? <laughs> you got the flu, it's worse at night. Yeah, COVID is worse at night. 
And he said, he said, night after night, he said, I would dread the onset of, I would dread the onset of night. And he said, I just think that night's going to last always. It's, it's just going to be like this. Morning will never, ever get here. And he said, man, how good it was whenever morning would come. It just seemed like it lightened the burden somehow. I still deal with the same issues. Well, Here's the good news and here's the perspective. It feels like that night lasts always. It feels like sometimes that this darkness is just going on and on and on. And it's never going to end. But the psalmist said in Psalm 30, weeping is for the night. But joy is coming in the morning. Night doesn't last always. Jesus is coming back. Or you're going to see Jesus before he comes back. Either way, joy perpetually, eternally, that will never end and go on and on and on. It is coming and it's going to be for eternity. And so Paul lived out his experience. And here's the answer. Paul lived out his experience in this world in the midst of suffering Paul was no stranger to pain. He knew suffering at levels most of us could never imagine. And whenever Paul looked at his very brief life, this is the answer. When Paul looked at his very brief life in this world compared to the eternity that Christ had purchased for him at Calvary and guaranteed in his resurrection, he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us someday. That's the answer. Night doesn't last always. If you live your life, with the perspective of eternity and keeping by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit that heaven is more real than where we're at and what we're doing right now. I'm telling you, I know we're attached to this world, but listen, one day God's going to dispense with this world. One day he's going to melt it like sugar in warm water. It's going away. And then eternity, which shall never, never, ever end. And so from our perspective, because we're such creatures of time, evil and darkness, we just think, oh, man, God is just, he's just letting this go on and on and on. Absolutely not. Eternity in heaven's going to go on and on and on. But let me tell you, your life is just a vapor. I want. I walked in, boy, you ought to keep this perspective of this mother. Bless her heart. I walked into a schoolhouse uh, one day, and in the front office, this young man had just been suspended out of school, and he, he, was, uh, he was just at showing out in the office and, you know, dog cussing everybody around him. And, and this African-American mother who was sitting waiting to see the principal, she stood up and she put her hand on her hip and she said, son, your span on life is short. Let your words be few. <laughs> and I thought, could you come with me? <laughs> Can you just stay with me? <laughs> but that's the truth. Job said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. I stood mesmerized by the weaving looms in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I'd watch the weaving shuttle go from one side of the loom, just clip, clip, and it was over. That is our life. It's just a vapor. It's just a breath. 
It was just yesterday that I was carrying my son in my arms and sitting up with him so sweetly at night and thanking God for him. And now he's gone away. Just a few that just seemed like yesterday. And now he's married and uh, has his own home. Life is just a vapor. Keep an eternal perspective. Night doesn't last always. Let me tell you, friends. <laughs> let, me, let me promise you. The fulfillment of these words is coming. I love this. This struck me the other day. I'd never seen it before. But there is an order of events. There is an order. Those of you that are under heavy burdens right now. Those of you that have problems that there are no answers for. And listen to me. I visit with people that there is there are no cures for what they're experiencing right now. There's nothing doctors can do. I, I visit with people that have scars inside of them. That only heaven's going to be able to cure those scars. But night doesn't last always. Here's one of the most precious promises in God's word. There is coming a time and it's going to be at the end of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the parousia, in the sudden second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. God from heaven is going to say these three short, sweet words. He is going to declare according to Revelation 21, 6. He's going to say it is done. It's done. You ever been, have you ever had a big, long, hard, arduous effort and project you've been involved in and how fulfilling it was to stand up from the table, walk away from it and say, thank God it's done. Well, let me tell you, friends, there is coming a day. And if you, if you read the first chapter, if you read the few chapters just in front of that, you can see how the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and he wraps all things up and puts it all in a tidy bow. Their heavens are going to pass away uh, with great noise. The elements are going to melt with fervent heat. The earth and all the works therein are going to be burned up. And Satan and the beast and the false prophet, Babylon the great is going to be brought down. This wicked world system is going to be destroyed. And then after that, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's on his way, my friends. And, and Satan and his wicked evil henchmen that have orchestrated the nefarious works of darkness in this world over the millennia, they are going to be done away with and people are going to tell you and teach you that it's going to take a lot of effort and the angelic host is going to have to wage battle against Satan and against the beast and the false prophet when he returns they're going to tell you there's going to be a great battle and the blood is going to flow to the bridle and the bits and maybe if we'll pray hard enough we can pray the angels through in a victory at the end it's not that way my friends Jesus Christ is going to come back he's going to triumph over his foes he's going to put down evil he's He's going to put down darkness. He's going to put down pain and suffering. And he's not even going to have to work up a sweat to do it. It's just going to be out of that sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. This is how he's going to dispatch Satan. He's not going to have to get down and wrestle with Satan. He's not going to dismount his white charger that he's coming back on. But when the sword comes out of his mouth, this is going to be what, this is going to be what destroys Satan. He's going to simply say, depart from me. You think about that, just the words of his mouth will destroy the ultimate evil of this universe. And then after all of that, and the bride, the bride has been presented, we will hear these words, it is done. There is an end to the evil and the darkness of this world. It is done. And then he promises this in the verse above that. 
Maybe the sweetest promise in all the word of God, Revelation 21, 5. He says these, I think it's five words. Behold, I make all things new. <laughs> when it's finished, when it's wrapped up, all things are going to be made new. C.S. Lewis said that when Jesus comes back again, and you think about this, this is the last thing and I'm done. C.S. Lewis said when Jesus Christ comes back again, that all the sad things of this world in time, at his second coming, all the sad things will become untrue. Think about that. They'll become untrue. They'll become myth, folklore, <laughs> legend. It'll be as though they never happened. We will pass out of the shadowlands into the reality of glory. In the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan, the mighty Christ-like figure, lion, creates Narnia, it's to be kind of, you know, it's, it has a glory. And I remember in the last battle, which is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, I remember as Aslan began to shut Narnia down, my heart was so heavy and sad. And he explains, thank goodness, he explained, uh, Aslan explained, he said, no, Narnia was always the shadowlands. The, the glory of this was faint. It was always pointing to the real Narnia, to the Narnia that shall never be dispatched. We have lived in the shadowlands. The real Narnia, the real glory is waiting on us. And when we get there, when Jesus has said it is done, and this is the answer for um, the problem of pain and evil and suffering, is it's going to be done, and we're going to a place forever, the eternal perspective. It's real. Friends, heaven is real. We're going there. And uh, no pain. The beautiful land of no wars. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. No more tears, nothing that causes tears or crying. And so when people ask you, when people ask you, you believe in a good God, sovereign God, omnipotent God, a loving God, then how can he suffer all of this? First of all, you tell him he didn't do it, right? He's not the author of it. And then you tell him he has an eternal remedy which will make the worst day of anybody on the face of this earth that's his child seemed not worthy to be compared with where they're going. That's the answer, maintaining an eternal perspective. If you stay locked into this world, if you stay enamored with this, and I love life. I'm not, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not looking for the bus today. I mean, if it comes, I'll gladly ride it. But uh, I do love life. I have great joy in life. If you're around Chris Krause for just a little bit, you're going to have great joy in life. He'll help you joy. But what helps me in the dark days, I know this isn't it. This is not it. This is not it. So let me ask you this as I leave. Um, if you believe that, if you have an eternal perspective, if you really believe that God has provided some better thing for you and you're going to glory. You're going to heaven. 
and we're going to be together forever. He's carrying you to a place you'd have never gotten on your own. That's worth colliding with this culture over. And the first step, the first step to begin to be a collider to the glory of God, be a point of light in this world, there's no other way God has prescribed it, is through the waters of gospel baptism. God's done so much for us. Who can forbear to love a God so good and kind? Why wouldn't you follow him today? I love you all dearly. May God bless you and keep you.